Good morning. I'm Heather Gonzalez. My husband and I are a part of the Roar Community Group. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV today, Mark 13, 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And while they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all by, uh, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you, Heather. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. Thank you for being with us. If you're a guest, uh, there's a connect card under your chair. If you'd take a minute, fill that out, get it back to us. We would love an opportunity to connect with you to see how we can serve you and get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, and if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Trenton will bring you one. And if you are on your phone or your tablet or something like that, we use the ESV at this church. So uh, Mark and I are, Mark's back there in the blue shirt. He and I are on staff here together. And we are officing presently at this, at this church. Um, and our office doesn't have an AC that we're allowed to use yet. And so uh, I have to find little spots to work here and there because, you know, with the exception of today, uh, it's hot in Texas right now. And so I find little spots here and there that are quiet enough for me to really like read and study, but also with just enough people coming in and out that my uh, extroversion gets coddled when I need to chat with somebody. Um, there's a place I found in Midland and it always has old movies on, uh, playing on mute on their one TV that they have in this place. And it's kind of nestled off in the corner. And, and they're always playing old country songs. And they serve me the world's okayest cup of coffee. And so I have everything I need to get a lot of work done at this place. Well, Tuesday I was in there, and the movie on the screen was a movie made in 1966 called The Singing Nun. Uh, the main character, played by Debbie Reynolds, who was an actress in the 60s, she was this nun from the Dominican side of Catholicism. 
And the guy working at the place was looking at it, Debbie Reynolds with her blonde hair and her very white skin, and said, hey, she's not Dominican. And I said, dude, I know. There are two different types of nuns. There's Dominican nuns and there's Franciscan nuns in Catholicism. And I explained to him kind of the difference. And he's like, man, I'm Catholic, and I didn't even know that. And so I'm going to go off script a little bit here. That's kind of how my evangelism strategy works. I try to be a regular everywhere I go and to build some relationships with the people where I'm at so that in order I get these conversations started and then like I'm kind of like a boxer waiting for an opportunity to like land land a punch like I get you to drop your hands a little bit and we can talk about stuff a little more seriously and so this guy was like he invited me into this discussion about Catholicism so then we started talking about faith when he said he was Catholic he told me he hadn't been to mass or confession or anything like that in a minute uh, and, and, but he's Catholic. Like, that was a big deal to him. Uh, so then he started asking me about the differences in Christian denominations and why there were so many. And so what we arrived at, what we were able to just kind of land on for that day, was that there are different ways that different groups of believers interpret the Scriptures. Uh, we talked about, like, infant baptism and the Lord's Supper, and, you know, as a Catholic, he, he, the Catholic faith believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she stayed a virgin her whole life, even though the scriptures would tell us she had other kids. I don't know how that works, but anyways, Catholics believe that. And then we got into other religions and some cultish-type groups, you know, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., and I just kept trying to bring the conversation back to Christ, back to Jesus, back to the resurrection, back to the necessity of faith in Christ and not works, and the difference in the one true God and the God of other religions. And our conversation continued into Wednesday because I went back, because I try to be a regular everywhere I go, continued into Wednesday, and then a little bit on Thursday. So you can pray for me uh, as, I, as I continue to chat with this guy weekly. Um, but here's, here's something that just, all of this kind of stirred my, uh, my thoughts. There are some doctrines in Christianity that me, we have to be willing to defend, even to the point of death. Namely this, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way in heaven or on earth in which people can be saved other than the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, completed through the resurrection and the ascension, received by faith in Jesus. God became a man to save sinners from themselves. And this is by grace alone, through faith alone. Not by works, not by any good deeds I've done. And also there is this ascension of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God as God, and through his resurrection and through the presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers, we can now follow him in faith and obedience and in submission to him. And if you believe something other than the person and work of Jesus on the cross, then you're believing something other than the God of the Bible. And then there are, that's the primary one. Then there are some secondary doctrines, doctrines that you can be firm on, and have some civil discourse with other believers who don't land in the same place as you. But you also have to be willing to say about these secondary issues. Like, these are not salvation issues. 
So for me, some of these are like the modes in which we take the Lord's Supper, uh, the modes in which we practice baptism. I think I interpret scripture correctly, baptism by immersion, um, but not everybody agrees, and I don't believe baptism is a salvation issue. You see the difference. Also, one of these things for me is like complementarianism, male headship in the home and in the church, or Calvinism, Reformed theology, things like that are secondary issues for me. And then there are some things that I consider like tertiary issues or third-tier doctrines, things that are important, but things that I do not want to debate with you, things that I don't want to talk about with you if we disagree because I don't want the division. And end times theology for me is one of these things. I do think the discussion is very important because the knowledge that Jesus is coming back at any point should motivate our missional activity and it should influence and it should inform our worship and our teaching. But the discussion about what will happen and when it will happen doesn't tend, up to, doesn't tend to build up the church. So for example, if you grew up in church, maybe you remember the Left Behind series. Man, Baptists ran to this book series like teenage girls run to the Biebs. Okay? The issue is, for me in those books, is that the authors of these books, in an attempt to make some money, I think, made some pretty definitive claims that are subject to interpretation. And there have been people throughout the last few hundred years trying to figure out when these things would take place and what they would look like. In 1988, there was a book some guy had written called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Coming in 1988. And here we still are. The Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the end times at least eight times, most recently in 1984. I remember in 2012 when the Mayan calendar was, was coming to an end on December 21st, 2012, and people were freaking out. And then Y2K was somehow going to usher in the apocalypse. And I just don't even want to talk about it. Don't get me started on those things. I was at a youth party, uh, 1999, New Year's Eve. And the clock strikes midnight. And some genius of comedy turns out all the lights. And everybody freaks out. <laughs> and it was awesome. Uh, I, lived, I lived to tell the tale of that one. Uh, it was me. Uh, just kidding. It might not have been. I'll, I'll leave that for you to decide. But anyways, all of this is going on. Just consider the words of Jesus this morning. Uh, Matthew 24, 36 says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so I think when we try to predict the end times, when, when these things are going to come about, or when you consider these things, and it, and it doesn't move you to mission... And you're, then you're kind of missing the point. You're kind of missing the point of the period between the two advents of Jesus, where his coming at his birth and his return uh, in, at the end. Man, so I just want to call you to consider a few things this morning as we're living in this tension between the already and the not yet of Christianity. The already that Jesus has defeated sin and death through the cross and the resurrection and the not yet that we're still living in a world filled with pain and death and the stains of sin, awaiting for Jesus to return and put all of this to an end, and awaiting for Jesus to come and ultimately defeat 
the enemy, Satan, and our enemy of sin. So the things I want you to consider this morning is, does this lead you to hope, the fact that Jesus is coming back? Does this lead you to hope in Jesus this morning? Does this lead you to the worship of Jesus this morning? Do you pray for Jesus' return? Does that lead you to more mission with Christ to those who don't know Christ? Man, if the answer is no to any of those questions, I just ask you to consider why that's the case this morning and really lay all of this before the Lord this morning. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this text together. Lord Jesus, we need you. We are thankful people. Lord, I ask that you would um, calm our fears, calm our doubts. Um, Lord, that we can sit in uh, the presence of you, our resurrected Savior, this morning. Lord, help us to see the necessity of faith and devotion and submission. And may that lead us to gratitude and thankfulness for the cross, Lord. And then may that lead us to go as disciples made in your image to others and make disciples. And church, I'd ask if you're willing, that if you'd pray for yourself, that the Lord would reveal any unbelief in your heart, that the Lord would stir your affections for him and move you to action this morning. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark, the next one. Mark uh, 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So last week we saw Jesus sitting opposite of the treasury and he was watching these rich people put in large sums of money into these offering boxes and making a huge show of their wealth and their fake religiosity. And then this poor widow comes and she drops two coins quietly into the offering box. She drops in all she had to live on and then she walks away. And Jesus tells the disciples that her devotion means more to God than the fakeness of the wealthy who are giving to gain the applause of men. And so Jesus stands up with his disciples and he walks out of the temple for likely the last time. The glory of the Lord has departed the temple. This is on a Tuesday still ending a very long day for Jesus that is bookended on the front end by Jesus cleansing the temple, cursing the temple, uh, chasing the money changers out of the temple, and ending by watching this widow drop two coins in into the offering box. And now he's walking out, and as he's walking out, he's having this discussion with the disciples. As they're walking out, the disciples remark on the magnificence of this building. Man, Jesus, what an awesome building we have. Look how beautiful this temple is, Jesus. Look at these stones. Look how amazing this place is. It smells of rich mahogany. It's amazing. And they're not wrong. For the time, it's an amazing feat of architecture, and it was a really beautiful building. It's like the Odessa Marriott of the first century. 
And Jesus responds to their verbal applause. And he says, look here, guys. Get a good look at it. Because it's not going to last. This place will be destroyed. And it will be leveled. And within four decades, the Jews would rebel against the Roman government. The Romans who were ruling them. And this temple, the center of the culture, and the center of their religious devotion would be utterly destroyed. And not only that, according to the historian Josephus, it's believed that a million Jews were executed in the process. For the Jews of the day of Jesus, including the disciples, the destruction of the temple would signal that the end times are here. It would signal the end of the world. And yet, 2,000 years later, here, here we sit. So some of my favorite theological discussions, um, since we talked about secondary and tertiary issues a minute ago, I'll bring this one up. Some of my favorite things to talk about are the issues of hermeneutics, which means interpretation. Uh, And within hermeneutics, there is a tool of interpretation known as a typology. So a typology means the study of types, uh, and a type is something that takes place in the Old Testament. It's a shadow or a sign that has a prophetic message that finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. So there's a bunch of these in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus as the fulfillment. So, for example, you can look at the life of Moses. Um, Moses' whole life points towards Jesus. He flees persecution. He ends up in Egypt. And then he flees and returns to Egypt. And as a baby, Jesus fled the same persecution that Moses' people were facing, flees to Egypt, and then returns from Egypt back to Israel. And Moses did the same thing to redeem the Israelites from slavery. And Jesus returns to Israel to free his people from slavery and bondage of sin as well. Moses spends 40 years wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the same wilderness being tempted Um, Jonah is another example. He spends three days in the belly of this great fish, a watery tomb, and then he spit out on dry land, foreshadowing the resurrection. Foreshadowing the resurrection of the Messiah, who spent three days in a tomb. And the Old Testament is filled with a bunch of these pictures. And here, Jesus with the all-knowing mind of God and the all-seeing eyes of God, Jesus gives us another one of these pictures, another one of these types, another one of these predictions in the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple serves as a foreshadowing of an end times event. This is the lens that Jesus is offering us to view the coming destruction. And this is the view that Jesus gives us to be able to know that these things are indeed coming. Mark 13, 3-4 says this, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So Jesus has just made this prediction about the temple, and what would appear to be a short time later, we find he and his disciples sitting down on the Mount of Olives. From this vantage point, they can get a semi-aerial view. They're kind of looking down into Jerusalem and onto the temple. So they have a semi-aerial view of the temple. So let's set the mood real quick. I know some of you really like to catch the sunrise. 
Personally, I don't get you people. I don't prefer early mornings. I am more of a night owl. You early birds can have your worms. I do, however, really, really love a good sunset. In West Texas, southeastern New Mexico, where I've spent the majority of my life, the sunsets out here, man, they slap. They're awesome. And everyone wants to complain about how ugly and dirty and smelly it is out here. And some of that is totally true. But our sunsets, man, glorious. Anyway, so I'm picturing this scene. Jesus is kicked back on the mountainside. Uh, It's late in the day, Tuesday. They're just enjoying the view. And the sun's setting behind them. And it's reflecting off this temple. And with its gold inlay and stuff, it's creating this really beautiful scene. And yet, ringing in the disciples' ears and ringing in their minds are the words of Jesus. This temple is not going to last. So the inner three of Peter, James, and John, Jesus's, Jesus's bros, his, his best friends, uh, they come to Jesus along with Peter's brother, Andrew, and they like pull away from the other guys, and they go to Jesus privately and say, Jesus, you remember that thing you just said? You know what you said about the temple? How will we know? When is it going to take place, Jesus? I imagine the disciples as Jews, are probably wrestling with what we can call a crisis of faith, maybe. Uh, I think at this point they've seen enough from Jesus to know he has done a lot, to know that he is capable of a lot. I mean, consider all of the miracles they have witnessed by this point. And yet, on the other hand, they're still Jews. They're still tied to this religious system. They're still tied to this building But they also are really starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is coming from the line of David to redeem them. And while they fully don't understand who Jesus is as God, as will become evidenced by the fact that they all betray him in the garden and flee while he's being arrested, they are growing in their knowledge of Jesus. They're growing in their faith in Jesus and his words. So they go and they're trying to get some clarity on all this. Jesus, tell us when this is going to happen so we can be on vacation. I think in their minds, the destruction of the temple is going to signal the end of the world. But Jesus has something else to say. And what he says, his words to his disciples, are just as applicable to Christians in 2022 as they were to these four men in the first century. Look at what he says. Verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So let's start with this, the first imperative, the first command. In the remainder of chapter 13, there are going to be 20 or so more imperatives from Jesus. And though they're given to the disciples, they're still very relevant and applicable for us today. Notice that Jesus doesn't offer the when. They're like, Jesus, when are these things going to happen? Jesus doesn't address that. But he does help us diagnose the signs of that coming day. But first, Jesus says this, See that no one leads you astray. 
Jesus says there are going to be people that are coming saying, I am he. Literally, I am. Literally, I am the name of God. I am God, is what he says. There are going to be people coming and claiming to be God. And some people are going to be led astray and led to follow these people. They're going to listen to these people. And my contention is this. People who are led astray to follow others that are making claims of deity, that are making claims to be God, show that they never truly belong to Jesus in the first place. And that could be anything. You could, you could be led astray by like the big-name cults of the day, Mormonism, or in the 90s we had the Branch Davidians in Waco, things like that. Or in our day, I'm convinced that we're going to see this in the elevation of self and the elevation of individualism. People who formerly would say that they're Christians will deconstruct their faith and seek to become their own gods by making self the ultimate authority. Many would maybe never verbally say this. Many would probably still acknowledge, yeah, God, I believe in God, I believe in a God, I believe in a higher power. But then they deny his lordship. They deny his power. They deny his loving and personal watchful care over them. And then they reject Jesus. Being led astray by feelings, being led astray by emotions, being led astray by the cultural ways of postmodern thought. And Jesus is calling us to stand firm. Jesus is calling us all to be firm. Stand firm. And I'm confident that Jesus tells this first group of believers this because as we know throughout history, I don't believe things are going to get better. As I read the Bible, it appears that as history is moving towards this ending event, things in our world will continue to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. Consider with me for a second, first century Rome. At the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire had experienced decades of political peace and political stability. But four decades from this conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples, the Roman emperor, empire would have four emperors in a 12-month period. And as nation rose against nation, this is by no means an indication that the Lord is returning immediately. Wars and rumors of wars didn't just end once Jerusalem fell. Throughout centuries, Jesus' prophecy has been, been being progressively fulfilled as nation goes to war with other nation. One commentator suggested that within the last 350 years or so, there have been 300 wars in Europe or wars that European countries have been involved in. And these wars increase in significance and they increase in intensity Man, just consider for a second the devastation going on in Ukraine today. Man, but the response for us isn't to write a book about it. It isn't to write a book about why the end times are now, or how Biden is the false prophet, or uh, start to, like, can your own soup and be a doomsday prepper, or to make any bold proclamations. The response to all this is faith and dependency. Because Jesus did, in fact, tell us that these things must first take place. 
the response is prayer. And the response is, as we'll talk about in a minute, mission. Man, earthquakes and famines have existed, and they exist now. I was in a meeting, this was like Tuesday or Wednesday, I was in a meeting with another pastor here in town, and we were sitting in his office, and I'm on the couch by his office door, and the door like made a funky sound, like a rattling. And I looked at him, and I was like, what was that? And he goes, every time there's an earthquake. And then he got raptured. Just kidding. Um, but there was an earthquake. Uh, listen, disturbances in, in the physical realm are a foreshadowing of future events. They're a foreshadowing of future events of Jesus returning. But disturbances in the physical realm are also evidences of brokenness in the world. Disturbances in any realm, physical, spiritual, wherever, they're evidences of sin in the world. And as these things increase in frequency and intensity, this is evidence of creation groaning for redemption and restoration. Creation is longing for the return of Jesus. And yet, Jesus says, don't be led astray. Things are going to get hard. And people are going to make claims that aren't going to be true. People are going to make claims that aren't rooted in scriptures. And these are just the beginning of the birth pains. And after Jesus says this, he gives us another imperative. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak with the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says, be on your guard. This is similar to Jesus saying, see that no one leads you astray. But the difference is that now, not only are people going to attempt to lead you astray, but it appears that there is also going to be widespread persecution of Christians. Western Christians, specifically Christians in America, many Christians in America, and more specifically, Christians in the Bible Belt are not experiencing this. To a large degree, at least. But I believe it's coming. Even in God-blessed West Texas, it's coming. And I also believe that we're all going to have to make some choices. One choice in particular, and that choice is this. Is Jesus worth the persecution that you're promised? Do you really believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior? And if we say yes, if you would answer yes to those things, are you willing to follow him to this extent? Man, what I think we're about to experience culturally is that lukewarm Christianity is about to go away. You are not going to have the option to be culturally Christian when these things begin to take place. You will have to make a choice to stand for Jesus 
or to not stand for Jesus. And honestly, your true self in these days will be revealed. You will get exposed. Your true beliefs about Jesus will be exposed on those days. And as culture moves more and more progressively away from the scriptures and the God of the Bible, you will have to decide, am I willing to follow the example of Jesus to me and endure on his behalf? Man, Jesus doesn't say, hey, be on your guard because these things might happen. No, he says, be on guard because this is a foregone conclusion that persecution is coming for Christians. And throughout history, the church always grows through persecution. Fakeness, hypocritical Christianity, all that subsides. And true believers of Jesus do the work of evangelism and discipleship. And the church grows in faith and independency as more people receive Jesus as their Savior. Persecution does not win. Jesus says he has built his church upon the confession of himself as the Christ, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him or his bride. But be on your guard. Don't be surprised. It's going to get difficult to function as a believer in a world that more and more progressively hates Christ and more and more progressively hates Christians. And this is not limited to cultural persecution. This is not limited to governmental oppression. But it will happen in some families. I know a guy. He was born into a Muslim family. And when he was in college at a Redeemer church, he converted to Christianity. He was led to faith by some of his friends and converted. He became a Christian. He left the, he left the Muslim faith. He's been rejected by his mother and his father and his siblings. His whole family has turned against him. And while all of this is sad, and my man is experiencing a lot of personal loss, he was able to count the cost of following Jesus and say, Jesus, you are worthy of my total devotion in this life and in the age to come. I believe what the scriptures say about you, Jesus. I believe that in you, Jesus, there is life. So Christian, take some comfort here. You're not alone in this. Jesus identifies with you as a persecuted believer because he himself was persecuted. He himself was rejected by his family before the resurrection and by his own people who handed him over to be crucified. And all of this he endured for his own. Sinners like you and I, who he wants, who he loves, who he values, who he cherishes. Man, and what's more, he's given us his spirit. And true believers in Jesus will be able to endure the persecution because he is with us to minister to our hearts, to give us the words that we need when we need them. But here's another thing I want you to consider. As we look at this text, Jesus says, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. He will provide that to you. So I'm confident that Jesus is speaking about those who are devoted to him and devoted to his word 
And therefore, Jesus is saying that through his spirit, he will illuminate our hearts and our minds, and he will bring recollection to us in order to be able to defend the gospel. When Jesus says, be on guard, what that looks like is filling up yourself with Jesus. Be on guard. Fill up your lives with the things of Christ. Not just rest in the fact that you are loved by God, which is certainly good news and certainly true, but demonstrate our love of God by our devotion to God. Jesus' statement about being present when we need him isn't a license to just not pursue Jesus. So pursue Jesus, and devotion to Jesus will lead us to mission with Jesus. Verse 10 tells us that worldwide gospel proclamation is a must. This is why we plant churches, and this is why we support other church plants, and this is why we pray for God to raise up men and women to go, because the world has to be evangelized for these things to occur. It is in the eternal decree of God. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus will return when the people he has called to be believers in him have received him and accepted him by faith. Then he will return. Man, but when you consider Romans 10, Paul says this, Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how, they, how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Man, all of this means that we're called to share the story of Christ's crucifixion and Christ's resurrection and our redemption. And those who are his will come to faith in Christ. Al Mohler says this, One explicit condition must be met before Jesus returns. The gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed in the entire world to all nations. This future mission is inaugurated when the risen Jesus states his great commission. That is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded us. And then there's a promise. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Man, this world sorely needs, sorely needs the gospel. And we have the gospel. So we have a story to tell. And as we are connected to absolutely everyone through the advances in technology, the time is now. The time is now to go. And we have been given a promise that God is with us by his Holy Spirit in us. So he will never leave us nor forsake us. Man, we can look forward to the day when people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue on the face of the earth are gathered together in the worship of Jesus, just as he planned it. Man, and a lot of that just starts with us being faithful, being faithful to Jesus and persevering in Jesus through difficulty. There are people dying without the knowledge of a loving Savior to him and spending their eternity separated from him. And as a church, we want to encourage and equip mission and evangelism, not in just like a mission trip style format, but where you work 
where you live, where you play. We're asking our community groups to plan some strategic missional outreach events locally this summer and then serve the other groups in their effort to reach their neighbors and neighborhoods. Our city is a really dark place. It's a really dark place in need of the hope of Jesus. So consider this. Pearl says this. A new passion for mission is needed. Let our hearts be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Going back to the basics means a radical change. Not turning everything upside down, but putting everything right side up. It is time for serious renewal. We need to consider our lives, our own ministry, as well as the activity of our churches according to the very clear instructions of Christ, the Great Commission to make disciples. So here are a few things I want you to consider as we close our time together. What are we doing here? I mean, really. I don't want to be condemning, but I do really want you to consider the calling of God on your life. I want you to evaluate the importance of Jesus' mission and calling and consider, does this have any bearing on your lives and your motivations at work or where you live or where you play? Jesus is coming back. And we don't know when, but we do know that with every passing, passing second, it's getting closer. And people are perishing apart from his love. And as we sit idly by, we can be at some level complicit in this. Look, I'm not responsible for saving anybody, praise God. But I am responsible to obedience. And obedience to Jesus. So perhaps, man, perhaps our lifestyles don't honor God. You may claim to be a Christian and walk in willful and ongoing, unrepentant sin. And I'd say that's just as damaging to the Church of Christ than atheism or just rejection of Jesus pretending is, is damaging. Listen, if this is you, Jesus is offering you something better. Jesus is calling you to repent and believe in the resurrection and in the forgiveness of your sins and to turn from those things and to give your life to him in complete surrender and in complete dependency. To lay down your pride. To lay down your burdens. To stop trying to save yourself and fix yourself or be good enough. And just come to the cross. And know that Jesus is coming back for you. There is going to be an end to all of this pain and all of this suffering. But we cannot continue to live opposite of what the Bible is calling us to. So maybe you're a Christian and you're kind of ambivalent towards, towards mission, towards evangelism, towards faith. Man, and Christ is asking you to count the cost. Christ is offering you also a better way. Christ is offering you a mercy and a kindness and a grace to consider the cross and the resurrection and repent of your sins and turn to him in faith and dependency and join him in mission to the world. Or perhaps, and this is probably more common in this room, perhaps we're just not very bold with our faith or perhaps we're just kind of fearful of not knowing what to say. And I think that's reasonable. And there's certainly grace for you too. But let's just consider this. Consider what you've been saved from. Consider what you have been redeemed from. And the cost that it took to ransom your life. 
And Jesus promises to meet you where you're at and to speak through you and is pleased to honor your obedience. You are not alone. Man, if you want to help growing in this area, we have the LeBron James of evangelism at this church, Mark, and he's like wanting to teach and train and equip you to learn how to share your faith with people. If our church is just existing to pull off Sunday morning services at the Fundome for our benefit only, then we're missing some really important pieces of what it means to be the church of God. God has called us into this place, into this time, and into his family through adoption and has given us a calling to go and make disciples. And he's asking you to join him. And it is a privilege and an honor to do so. To be called by God is to be loved by God. And that is a blessed position for a believer. So I'll close with this. Jesus went to the cross for two reasons. The glory of God and the love of his creation, which means you. And Christ is glorified in us when we are faithful and obedient to him. Faithfulness to him looks like obedience to him. And faithfulness to him looks like repentance when we fail, which we are going to do daily and often. But the knowledge that we will sin and fail should drive us to the cross and should drive us to worship and should lead us to repentance and should lead us to mission because we have been loved so dearly and purchased at such a high cost through the shedding of Christ's blood. And if this knowledge that Christ has offered you himself doesn't move you to worship and mission, then I just really ask you to evaluate some things in your life. The grace and mercy of Jesus to you is not for you to keep to yourself. When you have been saved and redeemed and been given new life and a new heart and salvation for all eternity, it moves you to action. So church, we can't afford to sit on our hands. We can no longer be consumers. We can no longer be hearers of the word only and so deceive ourselves. Christian, who do you know that doesn't know Christ? And are you praying for that person? And are you talking to that person about Jesus? Man, if you're not a believer in Jesus and tell you that Christ loves you and Christ wants you, And Christ willingly went to the cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You can have the freedom and the acceptance that you're looking for through Jesus. Repent and believe in his work this morning. Christians, let's be people with a story to tell, who are persistent in mission and evangelism where we work, where we live, and where we play. And let's be consistent in discipleship in the body. Jesus is coming back. And that ought to change us. Let's pray.